Lord, it's such a wonderful reminder that you've given to us, which we'll see in your word today, but, you know, through these songs that have been written that are full of biblical truth to remind us of what it is that, that we have in you. Regardless of what it is that the Christian has done, we do some bad stuff. We have ways of hurting and betraying one another that is tremendously harmful and, um, and it hurts. Where can I find forgiveness? And we know that if we are in Christ, that the slate has been wiped clean. That the blood of Christ fully, thoroughly, and eternally cleanses us. Lord, I pray that we would have a clearer grasp of that today. Because in our understanding of that, in our understanding of what it is that we actually have in Christ, the real reception of true and eternal forgiveness that is based upon the faithful work of Christ and not upon our own goodness, we can rest and be set free and, and rejoice in you and knowing what it is that we've been given. We have been, we have been set free. We have been declared not guilty, even though we are. We've been declared innocent, even though we're not. And from that, then, Lord, comes the spring from then which we can put on Christ-likeness and model and give to others what it is that we have been given. The person that, has, that understands their forgiveness, the person that understands the righteousness of Christ that has been given to them, that's the person that can forgive others. That's the person that can be compassionate and kind and merciful towards others because they realize how incredibly merciful you have been to them. There's, that's always just a biblical truth. And so help us, Lord, today to do, to do that which you call us to do, whether it's to continue to, to, to burrow into this resting and rejoicing and in, enjoying of you and what you've done for us in Christ, or whether it's looking to you to find the strength to do what you call us to do and that which we cannot do, sometimes do not want to do on our own, but that which would glorify you. So we lay these things before you, Lord. This is, this is your word. We are your people. Lord, speak to us and do what you will within our hearts today as you see fit. Mighty King of all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to, I had originally planned on going to, through Romans 4, <clears throat> 13 through 15, and full disclosure, we're not getting out of verse 13 today. We're just going to cover one verse. There's just a lot here. I, 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 have, I have really have impressed upon my heart the importance of understanding this idea of what we have in the righteousness of Christ, his righteousness, um, being our righteousness, and the importance, like the central importance of understanding the necessity of righteousness, not just any righteousness, but Christ's righteousness in order for someone to actually be saved. I mean, we talk about justification by faith all the time, and it's true. We are justified by faith. But a, but a faith that, do, that does not have the righteousness of Christ is not a saving faith. You need a righteousness by which God provides and, only, and he accepts 
in order to have forgiveness of sin, in order to, to get to heaven, in order to be saved, however you want to put it. You need a righteousness. And I'm here to tell you that the Bible makes it really clear. Yours ain't cutting it. And neither is anybody else's. You need the, the righteousness, the rightness, the purity, the holiness that God accepts. He gives. And that's the only one that he accepts is the one that he gives. And it's the one that Christ has. You need the righteousness of Christ. Nothing that you do, not your own righteousness can contribute, not your own goodness. I mean, this is what we're talking about. When we talk about whether or not you're saved by faith or whether or not you're saved by the law, we're talking about whose righteousness is being put forward in order for you to be saved and justified. Your own, via the law, your own good works, that righteousness fails. Or the righteousness by faith which is Christ's, which God approves of. Um, this is why this is important to understand, because either I think in the Christian world today, I just don't hear it spoken of very often. I think it's either misunderstood, um, it's just forgotten, or, or there's something going on where we just don't talk about the righteousness of Christ, which is like, dare I say, the best part of him. <laughs> His purity, his holiness, his, his righteousness, his goodness, all of these things tied together. There's a, there is a, a conversation in John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress. There's a conversation that the main character, Christian, has with another character called Ignorance that I think illustrates this well, that I want to share with you a portion of their conversation. Um, after some time discussing how one can actually enter into the celestial city, how can someone get into heaven as it Christian and hopeful and ignorance are walking along this road and they're both walking along the same path in order to get to the celestial city. And after some time of talking about how they're going to get in, a Christian begins to press in on ignorance's um, responses. And his name is ignorance, so you know he's not like one of the good guys. Um, but we don't know what he's ignorant about. And we see that fleshed out in this text. And I think it's important. Ignorance is this, do you think that I am such a fool as to think that God sees no further than I or that I would come to God in my best of performances? Christian, what do you think about these things? Ignorance. Why, to be short, I think I must believe in Christ for justification. Christian, how do you think you must believe in Christ when you don't see your need for him? You see neither your original or actual sins. But you have such an opinion of yourself and of what you do that clearly shows you to be one that never sees the necessity of Christ's personal righteousness to justify you before God. How then can you say you believe in Christ? Ignorance. I believe all that well enough. Christian, how do you believe? Ignorance. I believe that Christ died for sinners and that I shall be justified before God from the curse through his gracious acceptance of his obedience to his law. Christian, let me give an answer to your confession. You have a fantastical faith, a false faith, and a deceitful faith. For true faith puts the soul flying to the righteousness of Christ. It is this righteousness that presents you spotless before God. It is by this that you are accepted and by this which you are acquitted 
from condemnation, ignorance. What? Would you have us trust in Christ alone without us contributing to it? This would loosen our reins of the reins of our lust and make us live however we like. For what does it matter how we live if I am justified by Christ's personal righteousness alone? Christian, ignorance is your name, and as your name is, so you are. You are ignorant of the true effects of saving faith and in the righteousness of Christ, which will bow and win the heart over to God in Christ. See, ignorance thinks that by him just being saved by the righteousness of Christ alone is going to give other, himself and others free license then to live however they want. If I don't contribute to my righteousness, and it's all just by Christ's righteousness given to me, then what's to stop me from doing whatever I want to do? And that's where Christian responds and says, you don't understand what it means to know Christ by faith and to have his righteousness. Because the soul that understands the righteousness of Christ and sees his righteousness and his beauty and his majesty and their sinful condition and sees what it is that God has done to give that perfect righteousness to the imperfect person, that soul does not want to then go live uh, live however they want. That soul then wants to live for God and the one and to please the one who gave that gift of righteousness to them. Because the degree of the righteousness of which you and I need to enter into the celestial city is one that we can never attain or produce on our own. It has to be given to you. It has to be given to you. And when you see and you know that God has given you the righteousness of Christ, you're satisfied. Your heart's full. You then want to live in light of this wonderful righteousness that God has given to you, not for yourself, not for your own sinful desires, not for the advancement of your own kingdom and your own life and you getting what you got got coming to you and what you deserve. That's the only way that you can say, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. I can let everything in this world and in this life go when I receive what it is, when I see what I've received in Christ in his perfect righteousness. That's what it is that we want to talk about today and what it is that Paul makes a point of in Romans chapter 4, verses, well, verse 13 today as we look at it. Um, join, me, join me in Romans chapter 4, verse 13 as we read it. And then we will, I want to I draw our attention to a few things from it in particular. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. I want us to understand that earlier in chapter 4, Paul has been using a timeline of the events of Abraham's life to, to prove his point and his argument of how someone is saved, justified by faith, what's required for salvation, faith, justification, righteousness, what comes, forgiveness, innocence, being declared not guilty. These are, these are the things that the Christian have, and either you have all of them or you have none of them. You have all of them, you have saving faith, and if you have saving faith, you are justified. You have the righteousness of Christ. You have been completely and eternally forgiven. You have it all, or you have none. You do not have saving faith. You are not righteous. You are not justified. You stand guilty. 
condemned before him. That's an awful place to be. He's been using the timeline of, of Abraham's events to, to prove this point. Today he takes, today he takes a step back and he do, he's, not, he's no longer operating according to the timeline. He's just making a, a doctrinal, biblical statement of truth that he wants for them to grasp. And that's important to understand. He is writing these things, Paul is writing these things, God is writing these things about Abraham because it's applicable for the Christians in Rome in the first century. Because it's applicable to the Christians that live today. And that will be applicable to the Christian in ages to come, before Christ comes back. What we read here today is not just a doctrinal point that he's making for them, he's making it for us. The question is, how do, you, how do we read what it is that he's saying here, this biblical truth being stated, and, and bring it home for yourself? And it's my prayer that we are able to do that today. We consider the fount of righteousness that we have. I want us to start actually at the end of verse 13 in this phrase, the righteousness of faith, because the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Everything that he says preceding that is hinged upon this truth of whether or not someone has the righteousness of faith. If you do not have the righteousness of faith, you are not Abraham's offspring, and you are not heir of the world. Which in this context, being an heir of the world is a good thing. Usually Christians, we talk about having the world, being of the world, worldliness, those are bad. In this context, it's good. It's, it's, a, it's the promise that God gave. God gave the promise to Abraham and his offspring. And what was the promise? He would be heir of the world. How did he get that promise? To be the heir of the world, not by the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And so you've got to understand the righteousness of faith first, so that you can understand the, 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 the promise and the way that the promise reveals itself and the way that it works itself out. So the righteousness of faith here is contrasted with the law. How was Abraham made righteous? By faith and by faith alone. He didn't contribute to it. There's nothing that he can do to put forward before God and say, yes, I understand there's the righteousness of Christ, but here's also my own stuff, my own treasures, my own merits, and let me bring them together and give that to you, God, and there, boom, now we're good. You can accept me. That's not how it works. You contribute zero. When I say zero, I, I really mean zero, zilch, nothing. It's all based upon the righteousness that's provided to us by faith, and it's Christ's righteousness. It's imputed to us. Maybe one of the clearest passages regarding this is 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him, God made Christ, to be no sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This righteousness has to be, Christ's righteousness has to be given to the Christian. It's imputed to us. It's counted to our account. You need the righteousness of Christ. And Christ takes on our sin. There's this great exchange that takes place. Christ takes upon our sin, pays its penalty and debt, and we are given his righteousness, his perfect life lived. We get credit. Christ lived the perfect life. This is why it, it, it a doctrinal term, the act of obedience of Christ. This is why this doctrine is really so important. 
the act of obedience of Christ includes his perfect life lived. If he doesn't live a perfect life, he doesn't have a perfect righteousness, and there's nothing to give us. But his perfect life lived leads to his perfect righteousness, which is given to you, and you get credit for living the perfect life even though you didn't. And that comes by faith and by faith alone, which also is a gift of God. And so we see how complete this salvation is of God. He gives the faith, he get, which is accompanied with justification, which is accompanied by righteousness, and which gives you free forgiveness in the sense where you didn't pay it, but it was paid by Christ, by faith alone. He emphasizes the, where the righteousness comes from, whose it is, and the absolute necessity of it. And this is what we see and what is given at salvation. All of these things um, in one, faith, justification, and righteousness, all are needed. And this is the first place in which man's righteousness is contrasted with man's unrighteousness. Everything that we've seen in Romans so far has been an emphasis on man's unrighteousness. You think about what it is that we've learned in Romans chapter 1, what you know about regarding man from Romans chapter 1. You think about just what it is that we learned in chapter 3. None is righteous. Right? This is what we've learned regarding man's righteousness. None is righteous. No one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And he goes on to describe ultimately what leads to verse 18 in chapter 3, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Man has been described completely and thoroughly thus far in Romans as being unrighteous. And yet, Abraham emerges as this one with a righteousness, but not his own. The point that Paul is making is that he is unrighteous, but Christ has been righteous. And he has Christ's righteousness given to him by faith. And that's how he can emerge as one who we look to and we go, how was Abraham saved? How is he our representative like we learned last week? He's our representative because he was one who was called out by God, given the gift of faith, and, de- and given a righteousness. And that's how we are in right a relationship with Abraham. We're just like him, wandering about, living your own life. God calls you out of sin, gives you the gift of faith, righteousness, and justification. Wipes the slate clean, and you're his forever. And no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Isn't that wonderful? Nothing can, we'll get to it eventually in Romans. What can separate me from the love of God? I mean, these types of things begin to start the, 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 the wheels to churn right? Gears start cranking. Well, then what can separate me from the love of Christ? Nothing. This is what it is to have his righteousness. And so that's the fount of the righteousness that we have by faith. And that righteousness gives life to a promise. If you're taking notes, this fount of of righteousness gives life to a promise. We see this in verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be inherit, that he would inherit the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. This right, this this fount of righteousness gives life to a promise that God gives to Abraham. And keep this in mind. What, what's the grand? Don't lose the forest through the trees. What's the big picture of Scripture? What is what is the big storyline regarding the whole Bible? 
that man has fallen away from a holy God and that God is saving sinful and fallen man back to himself. That's the grand overall story of what the Bible is about. Man, man was created innocent, fallen in sin before God, and everything else is the story of how God is saving fallen mankind to himself. And by the time you get to the end of the book, you see how it's going to end. God wins. He gathers all of his people. No one can separate them. And all of his people enjoy him for all of eternity. It's a really good ending. I'd encourage you to read the whole book. And that's how this this story regarding Abraham is embedded within, that, these events are embedded within the larger framework of what it is that God is doing. The promise that he gives to Abraham is, is part of how God is accomplishing his overall picture to save mankind. This promise is purposeful to save the fallen sinner and bring them to Christ. Because there's life nowhere else. The whole point of the passage is that you need Christ's righteousness. God makes a promise to bring about the giving of Christ's righteousness to his people. And he embeds it within this Abraham story. Throughout the whole Old Testament, you see the promise unfolding throughout the history of this nation. And finally, as it gets to Christ, the breaks free, the doors bust wide open. And you see how the promise is fulfilled and who actually comes in. Who are the people, the offspring of Abraham, which we'll get to in just a moment. This is the first time the word promise is used in the book of Romans, and it becomes a, it becomes a main theme in chapter 4. It's mentioned here in chapter, in verse 13, verse 14, verse 16, and verse 20. And so this whole section, Paul is making this point to emphasize the promise that God has made. And just so you know, the promises of God are the best kind of promises, right? Because promises are only as good as the person who gives them. How many, how many times have you known someone that has promised to give you something or to do something for you, and you know that their promise is dirt because they have proven themselves over and over again to be unfaithful? They don't follow through. Oh, oh, I promise we're going to do this. Oh, I promise I'll get to that. Okay. Why? Because they're not a trustworthy person. But, like, God is completely trustworthy. In fact, in fact Titus chapter 1 verse 2 tells us that it's impossible for God to lie. There's, he is light and there is no darkness in him. He, he is nothing but goodness. And so when he makes a promise, you know for sure that he is going to keep the promise. And so the believer knows that we have this promise through the righteousness of faith. And so if you have the righteousness of faith, then the promise is for you. And then we look at how this promise plays itself out. We see this as it's described in our text today, the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Who's the promise for? The fountain of righteousness gives life to a promise, and that promise manifests itself in two ways in our text, who it is for and what it is. The promise is for Abraham and his offspring. Now, contextually, who are the offspring of Abraham? What has he just said earlier in verses 11 and 12? Who is he the father of? 
Who are his offspring? The Jew and the Gentile Christian. Anybody who has faith in Christ, right? He, why, did, why did Abraham receive the sign of circumcision? As a sign and a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father. I'm going to paraphrase of the Gentile. Listen to last week's sermon if you don't like my paraphrase. Verse 12, and of the Jew. Abraham is the father of the Gentile and of the Jew who have a faith like his. And so his offspring, contextually speaking, is the Christian who has faith in Christ. That means the promise is for the Christian that has faith in Christ. That means if you're here today and if you are a Christian, the promise is for you. But he also speaks of, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, the offspring referring to Christ. Makes specific reference, Paul does, in saying the offspring that God promised to Abraham was Christ. So it includes the Christian that has faith in Christ. It includes Christ himself. And this is why the word he is used in verse 13. What is... I read through verse 13, and I'm expecting a they, right? For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that they would be heirs of the world. Because he's talking about Abraham and Abraham's offspring. So it would, it would make sense to have a they, but he says he. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. And this is why he uses the singular word he. Because in the mind of God, Abraham, our father, representative in the faith, Christ, our head in the faith, and those who are of faith are so tightly bound together in union together that we are one in him. There's one faith. There's one body. There's one baptism. Christ as our representative head, Abraham is our human representative, an example of faith, and all the Christians that have the same faith as Abraham, we are all one together. This is why Jesus says in John 17, Father, I desire that those whom you have given to me may be with me where I am, that we may be one. His longing and his desire is for his children to be with him because there is such, such a tight-knit union between Christ and and his people, that it's inseparable. This is, again, why the question, what can separate us from the love of Christ? You cannot be, because you're one with him. God has, we have been, we have been tightly bound together. Now consider this. Do you know yourself well enough to know what a tremendous blessing and promise it is to know that Christ has bound himself to you? to you. I think of, I'm an introspective person, and I, I, I know myself fairly well. I'm blind to a lot of areas of my sin. That's the case for all of us. <clears throat> 
But when I think of the fact that Christ has bound himself to me, I go, it shouldn't be that way. It should not be that way. I have, I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to give. In fact, a lot of the things that I do are very contrary to the nature of the one who bound himself to me. I'm still very much unlike Jesus. I love him. I want to be with him. I want to be like him. I can't wait until, uh, until we're finally together for all of eternity. I, I want that. But man, I just know that I'm not like him. I do things. I hurt the people that I love, that I'm close to, my wife, my kids, my friends. I've, I've hurt some of you. And Christ has bound himself to me. Why? Why would he do that? Simply out of his free choice of love to do so and to decide it. And, and if you are in Christ, if you have the, this faith and you have a righteousness of Christ, he gives it to you and, and it's not like, okay, as long as you keep at doing dot, 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 dot. Like nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And if you have his righteousness, you are his eternally and forever. And he's gone away to prepare a place for us. Ah, I want to go. I want that. I want to be there. This is this union that we have with him. This is how he can speak of the promise being given to Abraham and his offspring that he, that Christ and Abraham and us, we're all bound together in one. And that's why at the end of Hebrews chapter 11, it says that, that Abraham didn't, none of the saints received what was promised to them because God's purpose was that they would not receive it without us. That the full and final culmination of the kingdom of God with Jesus Christ, our King and our Lord, dwelling with his people will not come about until, we can all, until it can come about with all of us together at once. And he intends on losing none. Man, when you, brothers and sisters, beloved, when you leave this world, your body goes into the ground and your spirit goes to be with him, it is still but yet a foretaste of the eternal glories that you will experience spiritually and physically with God and all of his people forever. And that's what we look forward to. That's the promise. That's who it's for. This promise is, is for us. And what is the promise? That we would be heir of the world. The promise is for Abraham and his offspring, who includes us and includes the believers in Rome. It was first spoken of and promised in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 specifically. This is how we see it played out that God long ago in the grand scheme of things made a promise to Abraham. And there are two levels to this covenantal relationship. On, in one sense, there is a very real and practical level in which God gives the covenantal promises an inheritance, a land, and a seed blessing to Abraham um, physically. A physical nation, the nation of Israel, would come out of him and they would have a physical land. But there was another level, another layer to the promises as well, in which were not physical, but they were entirely spiritual in nature, which becomes Paul's focus of here. The, the offspring that he's speaking of here are, is, are the spiritual offspring of faith. It's Abraham, 
the heir and the inheritance that we will receive, the land that we receive that is still to come, is the heavenly land, the heavenly country, which in Hebrews 11, Moses considered the reproaches of Christ greater worth of that land than having the land in Egypt, which surrounded him with all the worldly pleasures he could possibly fathom. There are, these, there are these two levels, and we need to read and understand that there are these two levels in which God is operating, in which he fulfilled and has continued to fulfill his promises to Abraham to have a physical land and seed, but that the greater reality that's being addressed here is the spiritual seed and the spiritual land that God promised to Abraham because it was made to Abraham and Christ and all of those who are in union with Christ. The promise that Abraham in Christ have, that we have, would be that we would be the heir of the world. And it ain't this world. I'll tell you that right now. There's a better world. There is a new heavens and a new earth, a new cosmos, if you will, that are coming of which this word world means, cosmos. There's a better world, there's a, better, there's a new heaven, there's a new earth, there is a better country that still awaits those who have the same faith as Abraham and been given the righteousness of Christ that God promised to give. And we're still awaiting that, that final culmination when that day comes, you won't need any more preachers. We won't need any more missionaries. We won't be doing two ways to live evangelism things because at the end, the eternal separation is done. And those who have a righteousness of Christ are gathered together to be with Christ forever. And those who don't have Christ's righteousness are eternally separated from him forever. And we will at that time finally inherit the world which God has prepared, what nobody can fathom, which God has prepared for his people. Jonathan Edwards writes a book titled Heaven is a World of Love. It's a sermon. It's a wonderful sermon as he talks about the loving nature of God's kindness and heaven being filled. Heaven is a world filled with love, love for God and love for one another. No sin preventing us or inhibiting us from, from expressing that to God and to one another. J John Calvin makes this remark on this text in Romans 14, excuse me, Romans 13. Regarding Abraham, he is therefore called the father of many nations. And that was what the promise, how it was given in Genesis that he would have an offspring, that he would have a nation, that he would have, that many nations, kings, would come from him. He is therefore called the father of many nations because many nations would become his legitimate heirs by becoming believers. And in the same sense must be regarded the expression here, the heir of the world. He was the representative of all the believing world and made an heir of an inheritance which was to come to the world in general, to the believing Jew and to the believing Gentile. As Paul goes on here, he makes this, he breaks down this dividing wall that in Christ there is one people 
And we will collectively together, Abraham is the father of the Jew that has saving faith and the father of the Gentile that has saving faith. And the point is that we together receive this promise to be the heirs of the world and we will receive that promise when he returns. To receive in full what it is that God promised to his people. I think about this in several ways as we can draw it to a personal application and thought. Think of it as like this. Abraham is our example, our representative of faith in election and the one who received covenant promises by the righteousness given to him. And so it is for all of those who have the righteousness of Christ given to them as well. And this makes me think and return back to the necessity of a righteousness for salvation. Do you know Christ by faith and by faith alone? And have you received his righteousness? Because that is what God requires It's one thing to know that this is what the scripture says. I mean, even that's one of the things that I find so compelling about Christian and ignorance's interaction on the way to the celestial city is that he has this doctrinal knowledge. He's he's using these terms, justification by faith. He has this, he has these this biblical knowledge and understanding, but what does he lack? The actual reception of the righteousness of Christ, which is required of him. Do we cover up and do we make ourselves feel like we're in God's good graces and standing because we know a lot of stuff? Or do you have a firm foundation and footing for your salvation because you know that what God requires is the righteousness of Christ and he has given it to you by faith and by faith alone? If you don't, If you do not know Christ by faith and by faith alone, and you are standing upon, as Derek had said, I've got my pockets full of my own merits here. Let me me pull out my pocket lint of good merits and give it to God and see that he'll accept it and go, oh, that lint is so beautiful and wonderful. Thank you for that. I'm telling you, it's it's not going to cut it. You need the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ. Do you have it? And if not, do you hear him calling you today to come? Which he calls, and he says, come. And if he's calling, you go to him today. And you find him, that he will not turn away any who come to him by faith, by faith alone. That he receives all who come to him by faith. And he gives them the righteousness, his own righteousness, and wipes the slate clean. Full forgiveness. Debt is paid. Have you come? Do you come? Will you come? It also reminds me of the assurance and the comfort that the believer has to all of us who know Christ and have received his righteousness. God calls us to rest 
and to rejoice in his work. I was talking to another brother about this earlier this week. You think of creation. What day did God create man on? Day six. What day did God rest? Day seven. What did man do on the first day upon entering into the world? But rest. His first full day of experiencing and enjoying God was the day of rest, God's day of rest. He has created us to rest and rejoice in him. You can only do that if you have the righteousness of Christ. And for those who have his righteousness, oh, we rest and we rejoice. But then we also work hard. And I want to lead us into our time of communion by reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. And in this text, he does a wonderful job of tying together these two realities of who we are in Christ and then how we're called to respond. We rest and we rejoice. Oh, absolutely. But then we apply ourselves and work hard as well. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. And this is the declaration of God's word to his people. But you are, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, Christian, believer, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, right? Ones who have received God's mercy, ones who are the chosen race, the royal priest of the holy nation, a people for his own possession, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You've received the righteousness of Christ in a very real and spiritual, eternal sense in the eyes of God. Because of that, Wage war against the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. You are a sojourner in exile. You have not received, you have not become the heir of the world yet. It's still to come. And while you're here and you're a pilgrim and you're still making your way as a stranger and this world becomes more and more strange, you feel more and more out of place, like you're, you've been exiled somewhere and you're waiting for rescue, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, the unbelievers, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You may not receive the thanks, the acknowledgement for what you've done that's lovely and beautiful and pure in the eyes of the Lord in this life. There's going to be people that never say thank you. 
There's going to be people that don't acknowledge the goodness and the kindness, how you've been over backwards for them. But who sees it? God sees. He knows. And he will make all things right on the day of visitation. And when he comes and he visits and he, and he creates the new heaven and the new earth and we finally receive that and we are no longer strangers and exiles but we are permanent residents of home, then his promise will have been fulfilled. And an eternity of glory and joy and resting with him is what awaits those who have Christ and the fountain of his righteousness. This is the time in our service where we're going to partake of communion together. The elements are on the back tables. There's a cracker. There's a cup. They represent what it is that Christ has done. They represent his, his perfect life lived. They represent his death, burial, and resurrection. They represent him, the whole total package, and how he offers himself to us. And so if you are a believer in Christ and you know him by faith, and by faith alone, and you're visiting today, or if this is your home, partake, get the elements and partake. But if you don't know him, let them remain. And to think about who you say that he is, and what you're putting forward and offering to God for a right judgment, a good standing with him. And if, it ain't, and, and if your answer is anything other than the righteousness of Christ, it's the wrong answer. But if your answer is the righteousness of Christ, then partake and rest and rejoice. Worship him during this time. So the elements are on the table. You can get those and return back to your seat for some time of prayer, meditation, and then we'll partake of communion together here in just a few moments.